to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. One of the reasons why it's important for us to read and reread and study the Bible, one of the reasons why we spend so much time as a church studying Scripture, is because by going back again and again to a text that does not change, we can measure ourselves whether we've drifted. We talked a few weeks ago about the importance of Paul telling Timothy to find faithful men to entrust truth to who had entrusted to others. And this passing of the baton and making sure that the message we inherit and that we then pass on is, is faithful to the word. And there's a t- danger, a subtle danger of, of drifting, of shifting, of just subtly, ever so subtly moving away. And one of the things that's a blessing about coming again and again to the word is it challenges us. It, it provokes us and it corrects us. I fear our text this morning will have that effect for us. Um, the truths that we're going to see in these three simple verses, I, I fully expect will stretch and challenge much of our thinking. Paul, as you remember, has from the beginning of chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through 2.13, this passage ending the section, has been on a continued exhortation to Timothy to persevere, to endure, to not be ashamed, to not be unwilling to suffer, to not fall short, to not be like Hymenaeus and Philetus who abandoned Paul. And what we read today is really the pinnacle exhortation. What we find here in verses 11 to 13 is the fifth and final trustworthy saying that occurs in the pastoral epistles. Um, in five different locations, in 1 Timothy 1.15, 3.1, 4.9, 8, and this passage, Paul says, here's a trustworthy saying. And we've talked about this before, but by way of reminder, what this is, is some formulaic slogan or phrase that the early church had developed as a way of learning doctrine. It was either a hymn sung or a statement memorized. And so what this gives us a clue to is what truths the early church found essential, what truths the early church thought needed to be remembered, needed to be put in mind. So these are not just biblical truths. All biblical truths are important, but these are truths that the early and first century church and the Apostle Paul endorsed are well worth memorizing, well worth having at quick disposal. And the truths that Paul brings in here, this trustworthy saying, the fifth and final, is all about the need, the necessity. We must endure faithful to the end. We must, we must, we must. And this morning we're going to see four trustworthy reasons to persevere. This is the the final and capstone of Paul's argument. He appeals to what the whole church by uniform confession says, and he reminds Timothy of it, and he reminds us of it. And I fear that what we see here this morning will stretch us, because to some degree, these are truths that we're not as comfortable with, they don't make us feel as happy, and so we can minimize them. And in minimizing them, we can begin to drift. We can begin to drift. I I wonder... How often when we present the gospel do we, as Jesus frequently did, remind people, just as our song this morning that Renee sang, that there is a cost to count. 
Remember, Jesus would do that regularly. Don't begin to build a tower if you cannot finish it. Don't go to war with an inferior army. In John 6, he turns away multitudes of people, regularly telling people, if you're not willing to pick up your cross and deny yourself, you can't be my disciple. Go home. How, how often do we include in the call to faith that the faith that saves is a faith that must and will endure? What we become in danger of doing is sort of a sanctified bait and switch. And we adopt phrases like, ask Jesus into your heart, accept Jesus, phrases you cannot find in the Bible. They're simply not there. They're not evil. But the first step in drifting is adopting unbiblical terminology because the Bible doesn't define what it means anymore. And so ask Jesus into your heart can mean repent and believe, have faith, trust, or it can mean whatever you want it to mean. Because the Bible doesn't define it. And we want, to, we want to, in a good sense, make the gospel easy for people to believe. We want to make it acceptable. We want, to, we want to make it beautiful. And yet, we do no one any favors when we call them to a faith that then allows them to live a life however they want. We, we call them to a crown without a cross. And, and these truths we see here in these, these three verses destroy all that type of thinking. They, they make it clear that the only faith that will save, the only way that we can expect an eternal reward is if the faith that we have is a living faith that endures. And this was central for the early church who faced real persecution. It is unlikely in your life that someone is going to come up to you and challenge you to deny the Lord. It was a very real possibility for the first century church. And life and death hung in the balance. And in that context, they thought these truths were keyed to hold on to. So let's read them and then dive in and look at them. And then try to figure out how these truths fit alongside the rest of the Bible. So, 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure... We will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And these truths, if you look at it, follows a, a, a pattern. There's an if and a then. If, and the if always has something we're doing. If we this is a corporate confession. This isn't an individual issue. This is the church saying this. If we do such and such, then this will happen. And if we do such and such, then this will happen. And each time, that's the pattern. It's very easy to remember. It's pithy. That's the point. And so we're going to look at each one of these four lines. And, and you're going to see that each and every one of these is a trustworthy truth designed with different reasonings, with different motivations to encourage us, to strive us on, to persevere to the end faithful, which is Paul's concern for Timothy. So let's dive in then to our first point. And what I've done is rather than try to find some pithy way to make the pithy statement more pithy, I just took the text and made it the points. You know, if this is the early church's way of trying to make it memorable and and Pithy. I didn't think I could improve upon that. The only thing I did do is in one or two cases, I brought out the verb tense a bit more clearly because you'll see that some of these things happen in the past and some of these things happen in the future and some of these things happen in the present and I do think that's important. So I have stressed 
um, the, the verb tense. So let's look at our first truth. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. And what this is, is a pithy condensation of what Paul teaches in Romans 6, 8 through 11. It's nearly identical. In fact, turn in your Bibles, keep your thumb here, turn in your Bibles to Romans 6. Because I think Romans 6, well, to really understand what's going on here, what's he talking about? Is this talking about martyrdom? Some commentators have suggested this is talking about martyrdom. I don't think so. What is this talking about? But when you see the text that this is summarizing, I think it will become more clear. Because we do that, don't we? We take Bible verses and we find pithy, shorter ways to say them. So, so Romans 8, which says, um, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Who here has ever heard, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you? Right? There's a pithy, memorable way of grabbing Romans 8, 15. Right? And we do that with many other verses. We sort of condense them so we can grab a hold of them easily. That's what's going on here. And so, in Romans chapter 6, here's what the Apostle Paul writes. We're going to start in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. Do you see how what they just said really is a just slightly reduction of that? But let Paul go on and explain what he means. If we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So the death here that's being talked about is, in the blank, salvation. When you came to Christ in faith, when you turned to him, trusting him, God killed you in Christ. You were crucified with him on the cross. And, and your old nature is put to death, and you're given a new nature and a new heart. You were born again. You died with Christ. Speaking of salvation. And, and what living with him means is not looking forward primarily to the eschaton, to eternity. But, but according to 6.11, the whole point of living with him is, is you've died to, to, to your old way of living, now you're alive to God. Look at how he says in 6.11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, which makes the next blanks, living with him means, or equals, alive to God and dead to sin. It's talking about the way we live now. What it's really saying is, 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 here's how we know Christians. It's the church getting together, reminding itself, all of us, all together now, as if it were saying, remember, if we died with him, we will live with him. Which is to say, we won't go on living the way we did when we were living in the ways of death. You see, point D, this is an argument from identity. An argument from identity and what it's saying, and I've sort of put it in my own words here, is if we have been saved, we will live differently. That's the truth that's being reminded here. So when you're thinking, why should I fight sin? Why should I today resist the desires that I have? Why should I say no to what so much of me says yes to? It's hard, and it's not easy. 
And it's discouraging at times. Why should I do that? And the church gets together and it reminds itself, Jeremy, if, if we have truly died with him, then we will live with him. Live with him today, Jeremy. Walk in the spirit, Jeremy. Don't, don't, don't walk in the ways of death and darkness. Live with him. See how it's a motivation from what you are. If you truly are a Christian believer, you will live differently. You will live with Christ. And it motivates us to fight sin, and it motivates us to persevere. And if we're thinking of, of taking a day off, we remember, no, the Lord killed me and he made me anew. I, that's no longer who I am, it's who I was. And so this first truth hits the issue of identity. And again, I'll come back to the mission of evangelism, because this is important truth. It, it, it comes right out of the gospel. Do, do we teach our young children in Sunday school in Awana and in our homes that when they've prayed the prayer, which can save, I, I fully believe someone praying to receive Jesus, someone praying to ask him into their heart can save them. I'm not a huge fan of the terminology just because it's outside of the Bible, but okay, they can be saved that way. Amen and amen. Do we then teach them that if they truly are saved, they will live differently? They should expect to see new life and new fruit and new appetites and new desires in their life. Because that's what the early church was regularly reminding themselves about in a context of perseverance. If you don't believe this, in other words, who cares about fighting sin? I prayed the prayer. Who, who cares about following Christ? I get to have my cake and eat it too. I'll just glut myself in the pleasures of this world. And because of the prayer I prayed, I'll go to heaven and I'll be fine. No, the early church knew that was a danger. And so they reminded themselves of this regularly and said, remember your identity. If you are saved, if you died with him, you can't keep living like dead men. You can't keep living like dead men. Secondly, he says, if we are enduring, we will also reign with him. If we are enduring, we will also reign with him. The word for enduring is a compound Greek word. It means to abide or remain under. The picture is under weight or burden or toil. Picture Atlas, you know, the classic titan with the weight of the world on his shoulders. It's a picture of endurance. And this is, again, the centrality of the point Paul's making. This is what what ties this, this is why he brings this, this quote to mind. If you go back to 2 Timothy 2, he has just said in verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And that's, why, that's, that's the, the verbal connection with this, with this quotation. That's why he brought it to bear here. He's just talked about his own endurance. And then he reminds Timothy, why would you do that? Why would you endure everything, Paul? I mean, Paul endured all lot. Stonings, shipwreck, beatings, imprisonments, desertion, wild animals. Why would you do that? Because if we are enduring, we will also reign with him. The verb tense here is present. If this is what we're doing, we should expect, we should look forward with great joy to reigning with him. But make no mistake, point A, we must endure. This is not optional. It's not as though there are two types of Christians. The Christians who endure and get to reign and the Christians who don't endure and they don't reign, they pay taxes in the kingdom. No, 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 there's, there's not two types. And, and there's so many biblical passages to back this up. These are not fringe teachings of the Bible. Let me just read a couple passages here. Matthew 10, 22. This is Jesus now. 
You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's pretty clear. I mean, it's a little uncomfortable, but it's pretty clear. Matthew, um, next, Matthew 24, 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Apparently, this is something Jesus said regularly. Or James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Or you could say another way, blessed is the man who endures. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. By the way, notice in that verse how there's no third option here. Because he says, everyone who endures gets the crown of life, which God promises to everyone who loves him. There's no possibility of loving Jesus and not enduring. They're the same group. They're the same group. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Those who love him endure. Those who have true faith will endure. Their faith will have ups and downs. We'll consider Peter shortly, who horribly fell for a while. We can consider David. But when you stand back and take a whole look at the life, it'll be a life of faith, a life of persevering. And not only must we endure, that the encouragement is that we will reign with him, rule with him in the next life, in the kingdom. Luke 22, 29 to 30, Jesus says it this way. And I don't have that quotation in my notes, so hold on. Luke 22, 29 to 30, Jesus says this. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus makes this promise in Revelation chapter 2, verse 24 to 27. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, he's just rebuked the faithless in Thyatira, but there are some who have been faithful. And he says, to the rest of you at Thyatira who are, do not hold to his teaching, you have not learned what they call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Which is to say, endure. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as where the earth and pots are broken in pieces, even as I have received authority from my Father. That is stunning. That, that rod of iron language is taken from Psalm 2. And the messianic king of the whole earth, Jesus is saying we will share in that rule, that privilege, that authority with him, we will in part fulfill Psalm 2 with him if we endure. If we endure. And then the close of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 3 to, 3 to 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever with him. This is breathtaking, jaw-dropping promises. And, and point C, this argument, this truth is meant to encourage us by way of reward. The first 
The first reason to endure is rooted in our identity. Christian, remember who you are. The second one is remember what is promised, reward. Or another way of saying it simply, our future will outshine our present struggles. Things may be hard now, but they're going to be so much better later. Paul says it this way in Romans 8.18. Now I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to reveal to us. If, if you're struggling in your faith, if you're struggling and persevering, if you're finding it hard, difficult, challenging, and you're wondering, I wonder if it'll all be worth it. I wonder if when I get to heaven, I'll think, well, yeah, that was worth it. And maybe you picture, you know, the scales getting really close, and yeah, it was just barely worth it. Well, Paul says you can't even make the, the comparison is foolish. It's not even, you can't even compare it. It's so much greater. He said, I, I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing. They're so trivial. They're so small in comparison. They're not worth comparing with the glory that is to reveal to us. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says it this way, speaking about his own suffering. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, pause, Step back and take a look at Paul's life and what he suffered. And understand this man just wrote, this light, momentary affliction. Understatement of the year, perhaps. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You get that? If, if the thought of heaven bores you, you've got a wrong thought of heaven. If, if the thought of the afterlife doesn't thrill you, you, you've got a wrong thought of the afterlife. Twice, at least, Paul says, you, you can't even begin to compare it. You can't even begin to try to like make a bank ledger. Well, here's what it costs me, but here's what I get. Yeah, I suppose that's it. You can't even do that. You can't even begin to do that. And this is one of the reasons why the New Testament speaks about the return of the Lord, and it speaks about heaven. Isn't isn't just to help us, you know, ask interesting questions and ask puzzling theological questions. It's meant to give us fuel to persevere. It's meant to make us drive on and press on and, and not grow weary when we are discouraged and not grow faint and weak when going gets tough. Paul finishes that passage in 2 Corinthians saying this, for we look to the things that are not seen. We do not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're that mist. They're that vapor. They're that here and gone. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So two reasons so far. First, your identity. Remember who you are. Remember that you've died with Christ, and now you're to live with him. Second one is, is reward. You must endure. You must, you must, you must endure. The one who endures to the end will be safe, but if you endure, what glory, what joy, what promise awaits. Our future will outshine our present struggle. And here comes the third truth, and I, I suspect this will be the most troubling and, and hard to wrap our heads around. And like most of the hard things in the Bible, it's simple and plain. Take, take my word for this. The hardest teachings in the Bible are really simple and really plain. If we will deny him. He 
will also deny us. Pretty simple, pretty plain. You might notice, a little awkward, I added the word will. The reason is this is the first if that becomes in the future. You notice the first one, if we died, past tense, which rules out Paul talking about martyrdom. If you died in that sense, you're not talking anymore, right? If you've been martyred, you're not part of the church saying this creed. No, it's, it's a paraphrase of, of Romans 6, past tense. If we are enduring, present tense, and now it shifts to the future. If we will deny him, he also will deny us. Now, if that's not plain and simple enough, you've got to understand this is another condensation and summary of what's said in Matthew 10.33. So let's turn there. Let's turn to Matthew 10. This is the plain teaching of Jesus on more than one occasion. By the way, this also gives us evidence that the, the texts of Romans and Matthew, at least, were known to the early church. Strong, strong suggestion that that is the case. And in Matthew 10, 33, we read, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And that helps clarify exactly what is meant. Maybe you wonder, well, it says if we deny him, he'll deny us. Maybe that just means he won't answer our prayers. Nope, that's not what it means. Maybe it just means he'll deny us joy in this life. Nope. On the day of judgment, when you stand before the living God, your advocate will either own up to you and say, mine. I died for him. I redeemed him. He is mine. Or he'll deny you. I never knew you. He's not one of mine. That's what's being talked about here. It's clear as daylight in, in Matthew 10. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And the early church thought that was important to remember. They thought that was important. As uncomfortable as that is, because we tend to minimize the truth that makes us uncomfortable. We don't like to think about those things. It's like the guy who never wants to look at his bank account because he's afraid of what he's going to see. You know, it's just sort of just, I don't want to look at it because I don't want to see what's there. And we take truth we don't like, we take truth that makes us uncomfortable, and we sideline it. And the truths we like, we write songs about, and we, we put on T-shirts. You don't see this on T-shirts, do you? But, but you've got to ask yourself, something's wrong. The early church knew there was a danger, and so they said, it's important for us to package these things together. It's important for us to put an easy handhold on these truths, that we have them ready. We need to be reminded of them. And again, remember, they were facing real persecution. There was the real possibility of someone saying, deny Christ, offer incense to Caesar, or die. That was a real possibility for them. And in that context, they said, we, we need to hold on to this. This is a trustworthy saying. How, how are you, you going to get the gumption to resist the, the fear and the shame when they come and demand that you offer the pagan gods? You've got to remember, he said, if you deny me, I'll deny you. They thought that was important. Are, are we so much better? Are we so much wiser? Are we so much more mature that we don't moved beyond this? I think not. But we don't want to think that. Those types of thoughts scare us. Let me tell you, this saying is meant to scare us. This, this, this saying is meant to be jarring, and I don't want to lessen its impact. This is, if you feel uncomfortable at this, good. That's the point. No one's supposed to hear this and be like, oh, yeah. Oh, oh that's, that's a good one. I remember that one, yeah. 
Now, this is meant to be a road sign, a warning sign. Now, it's put in the future tense for a reason. This is not looking at just denying Jesus once. How do we know that? Because Peter denied Jesus three times and was restored. So this isn't a magic formula. If you ever once deny Jesus, then you're done. Game over. Go home. No, by putting it in the future tense, what he's saying is if your life, as you move forward, becomes one of a denial of Christ, if you, with your life and who you become, are a Christ denier, he's denying you. Which is to say, whatever prayer you prayed, decision you made, ministry you've done in the church, or, or let me put it really simply. I believe I'm a Christian. I trust I'm a Christian. And yet I have to tell myself, and it's true, that if from here on out I leave my wife and my family, go join the Mormon church, live out my days there, I'm going to hell. Period, full stop. Jesus says so. My hope and trust is that the good shepherd won't let me do that. If I'm his, he'll leave the 99 and come after the one. If I'm truly his, he will not let me stay there. He'll come after me. That's, that's the resolution. But if we deny him, he will deny us. There's a couple of ways you can deny Jesus. Um, 2 Peter 2.1, you can deny him doctrinally. You know, that, that would be simply like denying his deity, like some of the cults do. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will bring secretly in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So one way to deny Jesus is just, I don't believe in him, or I don't think he's God, or I just think he was a good moral teacher, or whatever you want. Yeah, that's a way to deny Jesus. And, and if that's who we become and who we stay, if that is our future, he will deny us. There's another way to deny him. You can deny Jesus by your works. This is actually how Paul speaks of it in the pastoral epistles. Listen to uh, Titus 1.16. Speaking of these false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And this is the picture of someone who wants to say they're a believer, but they keep living like they're a dead man. They keep living like an unbeliever. And in Matthew 7, what Jesus says to those people is, depart from me, I never knew you workers of lawlessness. You didn't live like you were a new creation. There's no evidence you were born again. You lived in darkness, not light. You never died with me because you never lived with me. And it's not that we're saved by works, but the genuineness of our faith is evidenced by the newness of life. You know, if, if somebody wants to convince me they had a baby, they'll show me the baby. They won't show me the sonogram, right? Be really, no, I had a baby, honestly. Really? Where is it? Well, here's a photo of, you know... <laughs> The proof of life is in the, the crying, kicking, screaming baby, right? The proof of faith is not, look back here, August 17th, 1984, I prayed. A, the proof of faith is, look at my life, look at how I'm living. Don't you see what I believe? So many of us want to look back to something we did 20 years ago. If, if the faith that you had 20 years ago can't be seen in your life today, it ain't faith, it ain't saving you. I don't know how much more plainly to say it than that. True faith endures. The good shepherd goes after his flock. And there are many who sadly deny Christ by their works. They live like unbelievers. They live like practical atheists. He says it in 1 Timothy 5.8 this way. 
If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So you can deny the faith doctrinally. You can deny the faith through, um, through your deeds. And you can deny the faith through fear and shame, which is probably what Paul has in mind. He, he probably may even have in mind the notion of the Inquisition or, or being forced to, not the Spanish Inquisition, but being interrogated by Roman officials. It's a very real possibility, which is why he talks about not being ashamed and not being afraid so much in this passage. Go, go back after this message and, and reread 2 Timothy 1 all the way through 13 and look for those words about fear, about suffer with. Paul wants Timothy to get his head wrapped around this so that when the suffering comes, when the trial comes, he does not skedaddle like Hymenaeus and Philetus. Timothy needs to endure. He needs to persevere. The early church knew this, and they put these sayings together so they'd be ready on hand in a moment of trial. I know these are hard truths. I'm going to talk a little bit about fitting this all together in a second, but I don't want to lessen the weight of the raw simplicity of what is said here. If our future becomes one of a denial of Christ, either through doctrine, our works, or fear and shame, he will deny us. Jesus says it. Paul says it. Game, set, match. Point B. This, however, is not a case of losing salvation. This is not a case of losing salvation. John 10, 27, I've alluded to this passage, uh, makes that point abundantly clear. You know this passage. It's a wonderful passage. Jesus says in John 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. The day of judgment, I'm not going to say, I don't know you. I know them. But listen to the other description. They hear his voice, and they follow me. You can skip over that little bit pretty easily, can't you? The sheep hear his voice, and they follow him, and he knows them. So what defines Jesus' sheep? They hear his voice, they follow him. He knows them. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If you're his sheep, you can't be lost. But it's not because you can live however you please. It's because the good shepherd will go out and get you. And if he has to break your legs to bring you back, he will. And I think we all know people we have seen that happen, people who've, who've gone astray, and the Lord has disciplined them, and he has chastised them. But he has, praise God, brought them back because he is the good shepherd. Because these things are both true. Once saved, always saved is a half-truth that we like to tell ourselves. The, the real truth is once believing, always believing. This is point C. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The Reformation knew nothing of once saved, always saved. They knew it as the saints will persevere. The good shepherd will tend his flock. The gardener will, will cut off the dead branches and prune so that more fruit is born. Jesus' people will keep believing over time. Yes, Peter denied Christ. But Jesus said, I'm going to pray for you, and after you've been restored, strengthen your brothers. Yes, David killed a man, stole his wife, and the Lord sent Nathan to rebuke him. 
So yes, believers can have seasons of unbelief. They can have seasons of, of rebellion. But if they truly know the Lord, he will leave the flock and get them. There is no category for the carnal Christian, the Christian who accepted Jesus but hasn't chosen yet to follow him. The, the Bible knows nothing of that. The early church knew nothing of that. It's not a category. Let's, let's turn to Hebrews 3. There's a passage that I think helps explain this a little bit, the tension that we've got here, because I know the tension you're feeling. If this is true, you're thinking, how can anyone have any confidence in their salvation? How can we give anyone any certainty of their salvation? And I, and I get how we could think that, but I think such thinking is, is unbiblical. What I'm going to contend here is the Bible wants us simultaneously if we're acting and living in faith, to be confident and assured that we know the Lord, and yet, to hold out in front of us, I need to make it to the end. And if I fall away so far that my future life becomes one of a denial, I will perish. The Bible wants us to be able to hold both of those together. And let me show you one passage, there's oodles of passage that teach this, but let me show you one passage where those two truths are side by side clearly. Hebrews 3, first paragraph. Okay, Hebrews 3, First paragraph. Look at the greeting in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Just stop right there. Is there any doubt how he feels about the people he's talking to? Is this the language of uncertainty? Therefore, people who might be Christians. Right? No. Holy brothers, partakers in a heavenly calling. The author of Hebrews is able to speak with strong confidence and joy to the people he's because he knows them, because they've professed Christ, because he's seen the fruit in their life, and so he's able to address them in confidence. Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has honor over the house itself. Now, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but the, as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And then here comes the sentence I want you to see. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. Notice the writer of Scripture puts himself in the category of if. The, the, the man or woman penning Hebrews says, while they're under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I am part of his house. I'm part of the church. I'm part of the household of God if I make it firm to the end. In one paragraph, holy brothers, partakers of heavenly calling, and we're Christians if we make it to the end. And if that's tense and uncomfortable, so be it, that's what the Bible would have us believe. And our temptation is to hold on to one and let go of the other. So either you can be a church or Christians who think you can lose your salvation and all you've got is I need to make it to the end, I need to make it to the end. And that's a half-truth. Or, once saved, always saved, another half-truth. Put them together. As long as we're exercising faith, as long as we're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, have confidence, have joy, have certainty. You know the Lord. Trust that he won't let you fall away. But also know with certainty 
that if you do, and if you are not faithful, and if you do not make it to the end of the course, you will perish. This is the uniform, repeat testimony of Scripture. And people find it uncomfortable, and they find it difficult, and so they just say one half of that, not the other. And we want to say both. We want to say both. We want to let both ring loud and clear. Jump down a little further in chapter 3. He warns them again. Verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Notice he doesn't say you stay a Christian or you become a Christian by making it to the end. He puts it in the past tense. Sometime in the past, Jeremy became a Christian if Jeremy makes it to the end. This isn't about losing your salvation. We have become partakers in Christ, verse 14, if we make it to the end. You became a Christian back when you became a Christian. Genuinely, truly, if you make it to the end. And... The other part of the truth we've got to remember is this is not something we're doing on our own. This isn't some work we do. We have to trust that he who began a good work in us will finish it. We have to trust the good shepherd. What, what hope do I have that I won't become an apostate, deny the Lord, and perish? I'm not trusting in my own faithfulness and fidelity. I'm not trusting in my own ability and wit. I have to humbly and desperately trust on a Savior who will not abandon or forsake me who will not let me perish, who will leave the flock and come after me. He has done that in my life again and again. That is my hope. My hope is in my Savior, not my faith. And I know this is awkward, and I know this may be the first time some of you guys are hearing it, and I fully expect and I'm ready to talk about this later. But the blank there, both are true, next to Hebrews 3, 1 to 5. Both are true. We've got to strive to let the beginning of that paragraph and the end of that paragraph be true and believe them. And this, this, this argument, this reason to persevere is a warning. Undeniably, it's a warning. Unapologetically, it is a warning. We must guard against future faithlessness. I know this is tough also because for many of us, it's not tough for us. It's for tough for people we love. It's tough for people that we want to believe know the Lord. And it doesn't make us feel good to think they don't know the Lord. But I would suggest to you that it is far better to believe the truth and act while there is time than to believe a lie and, and comfort yourself with a lie. If you know loved ones who professed Christ once but aren't walking with him now, things are desperate for them. Things are life and death for them. Heaven and hell hangs in the balance of what they do. If they truly became a Christian, the Lord will bring them back. The Lord may use you to bring them back. But as it stands, the best we can say is who knows? Somebody who's walked off, left the faith, left the church, left the fellowship, embraced sin. The best we can say is who knows? That's the best we can say. I think you'll find, however, some comfort in our fourth point. Let's, let's, let's bring, it, bring it there. If we are being unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the fourth truth. And I'm so glad the early church ended with this truth. Now, there's a lot of debate over this. There's a lot of debate over what's being said. Some commentators think what's being said here is another warning. In a sense it is, but I don't think that's the point of why it's put here. Um, those people think that what it's saying is, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful to judge us and damn us and just everything else he said he'd do to unbelievers. Jesus does say what he will do to those who don't believe, and they think that's what he's saying. I don't buy it um, for a couple of reasons. But first, point A, 
I want you to notice the unexpected break in the pattern. This last of the four sayings breaks the pattern in a couple of ways. First of all, you'll notice there is no joining will also. Notice how in the first one, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we are enduring, we will also reign with him. If we will deny him, he will also deny us. And that's absent from the fourth one. And what that indicates is that what we read in the fourth one is not causality. In the first three examples, there's causality. If you do this, the result of having died with him is you will live with him. It's the cause. Dying with Christ is the cause of the effect living with Christ. Enduring is the cause. The result, reigning. Denying him, Jesus responds and denies you. Fourth one, it's not there. It should be surprising to us. It's unexpected. What you'd expect given the pattern, if we are being unfaithful, he's unfaithful. If he can't trust you, then you can't trust him. That's what you expect with the pattern, and it's not there. There's no causality. There's no will also. There's also that third line. It makes it a little awkward, for he can't deny himself. And so I suggest to you that especially after the incredibly strong warning of the third point, this fourth one, is meant to bring in some type of comfort, some type of balm. It breaks the pattern. Here's what I think it's saying. Point B. Our present failings do not alter him for us. And, and no, I want you to notice the tense. We're back to present again. Because what we've just looked at is the future. And if the future for you is one of consistent, denying unbelief in Christ without the shepherd coming to get you, then you're not part of his flock and you will perish. And that might leave some Christians terrified. You might be sitting here today, I'm denying him by my actions right now. Yesterday, this morning on the drive to church, I was denying him with my tongue and the way I spoke to my wife or husband, children. Am I lost? Am I without hope? What if right now I'm being unfaithful? Should I just pack it up and go home? You know, I've talked to people, more than one, who've asked me, they they think they may have committed the unpardonable sin. And there's a sort of despairing, should I just give it up? And this last line says no. No amount of unfaithfulness on your part in the present alters him for you now. The gospel promises are still reaching out. They're still on the table. Yes, you must be aware of a future that ultimately denies Christ, but right now, No matter how unfaithful you were this morning, pardon, forgiveness, restoration, it's on the table right now. He hasn't changed. You can't sin so much that he changes towards you that he says, well, I'll save everyone else, but not you. You can't do it. He remains faithful. Notice that there's no change on his part. Before we were being unfaithful, he's still the same now as he was then. We've been unfaithful. He remains. He continues the same. Faithful. This is, this is a wonderful promise. And that means that what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That means that has not changed for you. 
See, see how they counter it? On the one hand, watch out for a future which is dominated and characterized by denying and unbelief. Yet right now, even if you're being faithless in this very moment, even if you've been using your phone not to look at Bible verses, but to look up stuff you shouldn't, even if right now in this moment you're being faithless, Jesus says, come to me. The reason, he can't deny himself. This is the language of, of oath-keeping. This is the same argument the writer of Hebrews makes in Hebrews 6. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. Jesus gave his word. Jesus put out promises. He cannot deny himself. Now, there is a sense in which some of those promises are promises of what he will do to the unrepentant, to the unbelieving, to the disobedient. And so sure, in a sense, those won't change either. If you're counting on Jesus to, well, I know he said that, but he'll change his mind. I spoke to somebody once, a professor once, who said, I can imagine a Jesus who speaks of hell, but no one actually goes there. Nope, he can't deny himself. The, 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 the promises of destruction and judgment will not change either. He cannot deny himself. But I think in this context, it's the promises of restoration and forgiveness, the promises that if we are confessing our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So if that point three terrified you, and there is a certain sense in which it's supposed to put a little bit of fear into all of us, point four says, look, no matter what you're doing today, no matter how faithless you're being right now, you can turn to Jesus. You can return to him. You can be cleansed. He isn't going to change. You're not going to suddenly cross some line where it's like, okay, that is a 574,000 lie. I'm done. And praise God for that, right? Praise God for that. There is always hope in the moment for restoration. There's always hope in the moment for peace and pardon and forgiveness. We'll just humble ourselves and look to the Lord. Finally, point D. That makes this final word a word of encouragement. A word of encouragement. As I put it in my own words, as we waver in unfaithfulness and unbelief, Christ remains unchanged, and his gospel promises remain true. That is good news. These are four truths to keep us persevering. The last one to stop you from despairing. The first one, reminding of you who you are, your identity. The second, promising you the reward. The third, a word of warning. And the fourth, a word of encouragement. Now, we may not want to remember some of these things. We may want to get out of here and as quickly as possible forget what we have heard. I would encourage you to learn the lesson of the early church and rather hold these truths dear and near. Use them for their intended ends to cause you to strive and persevere and finish the course. Well, now we're going to transition to a time of communion. This is, in fact, one of the visible ways that we demonstrate our continued coming and feeding on Christ. I'm going to call the ushers forward right now. What we do in this meal, coming month after month, week after week, is we visibly show that we keep coming back to Christ to feed on him. We keep coming back to Christ for nourishment and for strength. We keep coming back to him again and again and again, and he sustains us. It's very fitting, the message on perseverance, this meal reminding us our continued need of Jesus. Jesus.